0: This morning, we're going to continue this week two of Advent, all right, and so we looked at this last week. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where sort of like church calendar things, are like, yep, I get that, that's part of my normal rhythm and routine, and some of you are just like, I don't know what to do with this, right, Advent, I think that means I can put my lights up, like that sort of thing is going on, but it's this idea, very simply, it means like arrival, there's this in-breaking, all right, and so there's the first Advent where there's this anticipation of the birth of Jesus, but Advent... Because we live on the other side of the birth of Jesus. It's not just a countdown to Christmas Day, but rather, historically in the church tradition, it's been thought of as this longing, this anticipation for the second advent, so the second inbreaking where Jesus splits the sky and he comes back and he's ruling and reigning, he's victorious, and he comes to set everything right. And the human heart longs for that. This sort of second advent, this second arrival, this waiting for our king. And so this season that we're in right now is not so much about a countdown to Christmas, although we're excited about that and we celebrate that reality. It's also this space to enter in as a church and say, man, we, we grieve the brokenness. We begin to, to look not just at the that world that's broken out there, but in our own hearts, the anxiety, the fear, the things that we carried in here this morning to know that there's a God that wants to meet you in those spaces. And so with this, I put this before you last week, and I want to come back to this theme each week. I want us to spend some time thinking through, like, what is it that is kind of holding you in its grip? What has power over you? Because Advent is about that one day when Jesus comes back and sets everything right, but he also wants to awaken us, to stir our affections, to find freedom in the gospel in new ways. And so maybe you're here, and you're sort of crippled by fear, or stress, or anxiety, or pride, or some habitual sin, or whatever it happens to be. Like, what has you in its grip. And Advent is a season to ask, Lord Jesus, will you break in? May there be this arrival of your power, of a new, fresh experience of the gospel. And so, we're praying for that. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this ancient passage, this prophecy. We're journeying through different selections of Scripture out of the book of Isaiah, this ancient book that looked ahead to the birth of Christ, to the birth of the Messiah, but also beyond that to the second coming. To Jesus coming back. And so, you heard it read by the Combs family. Thank you for doing that. And so, we're going to make our way through this. Now, as we like to do, we want to preach through a particular text, oftentimes working through whole books of the Bible. So, it's helpful to have the scriptures in front of you. So, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back table. So, you can turn to page 640 if you're using one of those. If you're like, man, I can't even see the, the words on the screen, you could get your phone out. One of the helpful things that you can go to cpwp.life, swipe over it. There's a card that says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen, including the text this morning, is there. There's space to take notes. You can email it to yourself afterwards. All right? So we're going to begin by looking at sort of the bookends here. I want to talk about for a moment the reality that we face. Because sometimes I think it's easy to sort of look back and think, man, this ancient book doesn't have anything to do with my story, your story, the things that you're facing And the beauty of the Scriptures is how timeless it is, that there's things in here that are true because they happened and they're true because they continue to happen and they continue to play out. And so, in Isaiah chapter 11, there's this really interesting imagery that's that's used. And so, we'll look at verse 1, and then we will also drop down to verse 10, and then we'll kind of look at everything in between. But verse 1 says, "'There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit.'" And then in a moment, we'll look more closely. We're in verse 10. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In this particular book, right, we got to make sure we understand there's something going on historically. And so if you were to go and you were to sit down and you were to read the first 10 chapters, here's what you would find in kind of a quick summary fashion, all right, is that things are just in a state of devastation that God's people, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, God said, hey, you keep this up, I'm gonna send judgment upon you. And so there was nations that began to invade them, one of which was Assyria and they were wicked and they were brutal. And the imagery that is used is they literally came in with an ax and they cut down God's people. If God's people would have been like this forest, it has been felled, it has been cut down and now there's just stumps that remain. And so that's sort of the imagery. Like we look at this, we wanna to get to the good stuff of like, ooh, there's new growth that's happening out of this stump, out of the, and then we talk about the Roots here in a moment. But before we jump to that, there's a stump, which means that something's been cut down. All right. It looks like there's no life. And so, in this point in the scriptures, God's people have been cut down. And then the Assyrians, they get full of themselves. And God's like, Hey, just just so you know, you're only a tool in my hand. I am sovereign. I'm ruling and reigning over that. I'm going to take the axe to you. And so, He literally lays them bare. All right. So, they're the superpower at one time, and then they go away. It's because God is sovereign and he's ruling and reigning. But what we need to see in this, and so you kind of picture this, it's up here, like just this, what well, at one time, maybe been this beautiful forest. Now everything is cut down. It looks like whether they came through with an ax or just like a storm blew through. And I wanna look at this and say, on the one hand, is this Isaiah's context? Is this Isaiah's time? Or is this a picture of 2018? And the answer is yes. Yes, this is Isaiah's time. This is what he's dealing with. He's wondering, and the people would have been wondering, God, is there going to be growth? Because everywhere around us, it just looks like devastation. We don't know what to do. And yet, here we are thousands of years later. And in 2018, if we're honest, I know we like to pretend like everything's okay. But man, we feel this reality. I did a quick Google search this week, and I just Googled tragedies in 2018. It was a depressing thing to read through, right? And we can believe this lie of progress that it's going to get better. You have 20, 2019 New Year's resolutions. It's all going to get solved. And the reality is it won't if we're trying to do it in our own strength. And in many ways, things have been laid bare. I read an article this week. I want to share a couple of quotes from it. Um, don't agree with it, where the guy lands in everything, but he wrote for uh, New York Magazine, a guy named Andrew Sullivan. Um, I've read some things of his in times past that have been very helpful, thought-provoking. Let me read a couple sections to you talking about our cultural moment. Because I think if we look out of the field of our lives, you want to know what's been laid bare? We are a people, we are a culture, not just out there, but in here as well, where we've lost meaning. So we go about our lives, we give time and energy and affection to all sorts of things, hoping for what? maybe they'll just keep us distracted, all right? but we're longing for meaning. We're longing to have our stories matter. And here's what Andrew Sullivan says. He says, all right, in light of that, here's what takes place because we don't know what to do with that angst that we feel. And Advent is this invitation, don't ignore that. Like that hurt and that pain and that confusion you brought in, you can ignore it, all right? You can try and dismiss it or you can enter in and invite Jesus to work through it. And I would encourage the latter, but that's going to be hard. And here's what this man says. He says, our modern world tries extremely hard to protect us from these sort of existential moments, right? Where we wrestle through things like, what is meaning in life? He says, so Netflix, air conditioning, sex apps, Alexa, kale. I love for a moment that he put kale in there, all right? Um, Like, as if that's going to fix everything, right? Pilates, Spotify, Twitter. He says, they're all designed to create a world in which we rarely get a second to confront ultimate meaning, He says that is until a tragedy occurs, a death happens or a diagnosis strikes. Unlike any humans before us, we take those who are much closer to death than we are and then we sequester them into nursing homes where they cannot remind us of our own fate in our daily lives. Can I just be busy? Can I just be distracted? I don't want to enter in. I know I'm created for more. Like we feel that but we don't know what to do but we are longing for meaning and there's this devastation where things have been felled, they've been cut down. So, he continues this way a couple paragraphs later, and he says, the need for meaning hasn't gone away. And he begins to comment on even the political times that we live in as people dig their heels in, kind of on either extreme, because the article is entitled um, "The, The New Religions of America. And he says this, the need for meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in and they were tamed by Christianity, find expression in various political cults. And these political manifestations of religion are new and crude as all new cults have to be. They haven't been experienced and refined and modeled by millennia of practice and thought. They are evolving in real time. And like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world." And so the desire to want to bring meaning to save the world, that can be a good thing. But in this world, listen, where Christianity, where the gospel has sort of just seemingly disappeared from the public discourse and we don't know what to do and maybe we don't enter in and that's on us as the church to enter into those spaces, what rises up in its place is people getting very, very political to say, this is going to solve it. So my candidate's going to do this, and yours is evil, and this and that. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. And if you want to play the middle and be like, well, that's why I'm a libertarian. I'm better than all of you. Like, listen, we all got our issues, right? And the reality is this. We oftentimes look to someone or something to provide meaning, to provide some salvation. And there's this opportunity. Don't miss this. There's some cultural critique that's going on. But what an opportunity for the church to actually enter in and say, we don't trust in any earthly ruler, any king, any president, any senator, any governor, any mayor, right? Like it doesn't matter who on our which side, our ultimate hope is for the king, the true king to come back and to set everything right. And Advent is an invitation to that. So as we go back into this text, what's so fascinating here is the language then in verse one, there's so come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of King David, and so, in this world that looks devastated, and there's just this stump that remains, there's this speaking here of this shoot. And it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that a new king will rise up. And it's not magnificent and powerful at first glance. It's this tiny, fragile little shoot poking its way out of this stump, but eventually, and a branch from his roots, and eventually it's going to bear fruit. It's eventually going to grow, and it's going to increase, and this is how the kingdom of God works, so different from the kingdoms of the earth. And so, this is a promise that's here, that there is going to come from the line of David, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king. So, the people back then would have received that as really good news amidst all the devastation. And you and I can receive that as really good news amidst the devastation, the lack of meaning, the confusion that exists to know, ah, in an unexpected way and from an unexpected place, something is going to burst forth. In the middle of this chaos, it's going to bring flourishing and delight and wholeness, and it's going to bear fruit. So, you look at it and it's like, oh, that's cool. And then there's this other really brilliant thing that's happening here is it's sort of bookended. You got verse 1 and then verse 10, and they're meant to kind of set this section apart. It says, in that day, now it talks about not the shoot from Jesse, but the root of Jesse. Now, Just think about it for a moment, the logic of it. Like, how can you be both this shoot coming out of this stump and also be from the root of Jesse? Because the root exists before the shoot does. So what is this communicating? Well, it's saying there is a Messiah, there is a king that's going to come from everything that's been cut down and laid waste and all the difficulty and all the pain. But also know this, long before Jesse ever existed and long before a promise for a king to come out of the line of Jesse and out of David there was this root, which means this is speaking of what preexisted, what existed before Jesse or David had ever come on the scene, and it's God himself. God is the root. God is the, the creator of everything. And what is so brilliant about this passage in this Advent season, as we look ahead to Christmas, as we long for the second coming, is God is communicating, hey, I'm the root, I'm the creator, and in order to fix this mess, I've got to enter back in. In the most humble of circumstances, this tiny little shoot that would spring forth, and it's fragile and it's weak, but it's gonna change everything. And that's what we're invited into. I came across this illustration I thought was helpful. uh, I was reading through an old sermon by Tim Keller on this passage. He said, so just imagine for a moment, and he begins to liken it to a strategic planning session, all right? And so, some of you are very excited about this. You're like, I just love whiteboards and dry erase markers are my friends, okay? And so, you have this moment. He said, so imagine you set out, all right? And you began listing your goals there on the whiteboard, all right? And you began just Saying things like this. All right? imagine the st- strategy. Maybe for Jesus, he's like, "Here's what I'm gonna put on the whiteboard." All right, all right. A couple thousand years from from my from my lifetime, like I want to influence the world in dramatic ways. I want billions of people to worship me. I want to have massive influence over just civilization as a whole. I want my teachings 2,000 years later to be regarded as the most influential, you know, kind of thought leader, perspective philosophy in all the world. And just on and on begins to fill the whiteboard with all these goals and all these things. And be like, okay, cool. Now, how do you go about that? If we were to sort of try and reverse engineer this, I think on our own, what we would seek to do is have Jesus and enter with a big splash, a lot of fanfare, all right? A a lot of social media presence, a lot of things to reinforce this message and what does he do instead? There's not fireworks and armies ushering him in and all of this, he's born to a virgin in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem, almost gets killed by Herod, has to flee, so he's a refugee who then comes back into his homeland, but ends up going to a place called Nazareth, which there's the word in the day was like, can anything good come from Nazareth? This tiny little hick remote town, all right? We know from history that that Jesus, his his earthly father, ends up probably passing away at an early age. So there he is with a single mom, Mary, who has this baggage in her story about like, oh, sure, you were a virgin, all of that that would have followed her. Then when he finally gets a little bit of fanfare, some people get some following, they end up deserting him, and his closest friends rebel against him. One of them even betrays him, and he ends up dying in disgrace on a Roman execution device called a cross, which was reserved for the worst of criminals. Like, if you were going to whiteboard this thing and think through strategically, like, okay, here's how we got to get Jesus to where he's known today, we wouldn't have picked any of that. The way that our God works, like there's going to be this shoot that comes out of this devastation, our God is going to enter in because he's the root, He's the creator of everything, and he's going to come in an unexpected way. And so this leads us, let's look at verses one to five, that not only is this, a depiction of, kind of the reality that we face, this then is about the ruler that you and I can actually trust. Because he's the one who gives away power. He's proving to us that weak is the new strong, that in this counterculture upside down way, instead of grabbing for power, he gives it up. Instead of fighting for his life, he willingly gives it up. And in that showcases that he's the true king. He's the one that we can actually trust. And so with all that pain and angst that we feel, maybe even in a heightened sense this season, here is the king. there's a politician to get behind, It is Jesus. So look with me, verses one to five. Let's look at some of the description here for just a moment. So it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So look at that. This Messiah is gonna be anointed with the spirit. We begin to connect the dots. We get to read about Jesus and how he gets baptized by John the baptizer, all right? And he comes up out of the water. And the spirit descends upon them and the voice from heaven, listen, the voice from heaven says, you're my beloved son and in you I am well pleased and Jesus hasn't done a stinking thing yet. Jesus ministers out of the blessing that he receives empowered by the Spirit. He doesn't minister and do things to earn the blessing. He comes up out of the water and the Father speaks over him, you're my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. And that narrative is true not only for Jesus but for you and I. If we keep trying to prove ourselves and earn the blessing, we have missed the gospel. It shows us as this man empowered by the Spirit, the God-man Jesus, he receives this blessing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have that blessing. It's being spoken over you by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You've got nothing to prove. Do you believe that? And it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And Now look how it describes it. It says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So it's not that he has a lot of factual knowledge, though that's true. He actually has wisdom. Such a lost thing in our day and age. He has wisdom and understanding. Verse 2. middle part of verse two, the spirit of counsel and of might. You know what this means? The spirit of counsel. He knows exactly what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. He never has a moment where he's like, I don't know, what do you think? What should we do here? I'm not really sure. You know, I'm, I, sometimes I struggle to make decisions. I took the Myers-Briggs. I'm not sure how this is all supposed to play out, right? Like, he didn't struggle with any of that, He's not full of arrogance and pride or just like, I just like to make quick decisions or something either. He's like, no, I know exactly what to do because I'm the root. I created all this. I know how it's supposed to go. So it's counsel and then it's might, which means he actually has the power to do it. Because some of us find ourselves in situations where we're like, yeah, I think I know what can be done. I just don't have the power to execute on it. I can't do it. I can't make this happen. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm sorry, bro. I don't know what you're talking about because I have all counsel and I have all might. He can make things happen. That's how he is described. The spirit of knowledge, it says, and the fear of the Lord. Now look at the start of verse three, and his delight, it reinforces this idea, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Let me ask you, in this Advent season, you know, for all of life, but there's a call to delight in the fear of the Lord, meaning so what we saw last week as we started this series and looked at Isaiah six, where Isaiah gets this vision of the heavenly throne room and he's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he cries out, woe is me, I am lost. He completely comes undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. What's happening? He's run up against the glory of God and it puts him in his place. And so there's this healthy fear and reverence. Any bit of ego that would have existed in Isaiah is literally like purged from him in that moment because he's like, oh my goodness, like you're the God of the universe. Let me ask you, do you delight in the fear of the Lord? And what we learn about this Messiah, this shoot that grows up, is he delights in the fear of the Lord. And so this is what happens when one delights in the fear of the Lord. I believe it it leads to... Proper, good, healthy decision making as well as deliverance for other people. It says, He shall not judge them by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Think about that. It means he doesn't look at just the outward appearance. How many times have you and I gotten ourselves in trouble by just looking at the surface of things? So maybe you got in a relationship, you're like, yeah, I know they got a wicked heart, but they're beautiful, all right? Um, Maybe that's what you went into. Or maybe you you purchased some house and you just like got enamored by things that are like cool to be enamored about, but you didn't pay any attention to like, yeah, well, it needs new plumbing and the AC shot and the roof is leaking. Yeah, but the door handles on the cabinets are legit. Did you see those, right? So sometimes we get caught up in just appearance like, hey, there's bigger things to pay attention to. Jesus never loses sight. He didn't have this sort of fear of man where he's just looking at the outward appearance and sort of getting caught up in that. He sees the heart, he knows everything. And it leads to right decisions that bless other people. Look how it continues. It says this. By, but with righteousness, verse 4, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now you can read that sometimes and think, oh, that's kind of mean. Like you're judging the poor. You know, walk up to a poor, impoverished person and like, let me pass some judgment on you. That's not what it's speaking of. That's what we tend to do in self righteousness. So we feel better. We tend to look down at somebody and think, oh, it's probably their faults so that we can feel good about ourselves. Jesus shows up and says when he judges the poor, it means he set things in the right and proper order. He brings justice. He sees the situation. He says, I'm going to set this right. And the power that he has, right, his counsel and his might, again, is exemplified here at the closing of verse 4. It says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked through the power of his word. Power of the word of God creates the power of the word of God is what is upholding us right now. That breath you just took is because God, Jesus himself is upholding us by the power of his word and his breath, his words, they will bring judgment, they can bring a right ordering, they can bring the peace that we long for. And this is what Advent points us to. Not just his first coming, but his second coming. And then look at verse five, there's this beautiful Sort of imagery that's used here. It says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, cool. So, he's got a pretty good belt, it sounds like. But in doing some word study of this, and a couple commentators made reference to, hey, in this, there's something that can be missed as this gets translated. And it's literally speaking of the reality of like if there were outer garments that were being worn, this particular ruler this one that we know is the Messiah, this one that we know is Jesus, it's like, hey, if you were to take everything off, it's speaking of sort of the the undergarments, sort of like, okay, there's an intimacy now, like you're seeing this person, they're a bit more exposed. If you were to see kind of what was beneath the surface, if you were to take out the outer layers and what you were left with, it's saying literally the undergarments of this ruler are what, did you see it there? Righteousness and faithfulness. The core of this leader The core of this Messiah, the core of this King is one who is completely righteous, who seeks to bring about a right ordering, has a care and a compassion for those that are marginalized, that He moves towards the broken, that He moves towards you, that He moves towards me. The Christmas story, this Advent season is about a God who moved into the neighborhood, that He pursued you for the glory of the Father and for your joy and my joy. And what is at the core of his being, You want to know why this is a ruler that we can get behind. This is why we should be in glad submission to this king and to no other is because he's characterized like at his core, he is righteous and he is faithful. And what he says that he will do, what we're gonna look at in verses six to 10, he will see it through. I love the way Ray Ortland in his commentary, I would encourage you, Um, normally I wouldn't say get a commentary it's great for your devotions but this one man like this, make your heart sing like begin reading through this and it's just beautiful and powerful and he says this he says we can trust him without being guarded think about that for a moment we're guarded around almost everyone aren't we but with Jesus we can trust him without being guarded if we do hold back we are saying that we are more to be trusted than he is I read that this week I was like oh dang Like that was a good, redemptive sort of rebuke. He's the one that can be trusted. Why in the world would I have a posture like I can be more trusted than Jesus? He's full of faithfulness and righteousness. He continues, even now the fullness of his kingdom is only an inch away, and all that stands between the present moment and the promised future is the command of God. He is not waiting for favorable conditions in human social evolution, right? He's not into this meaning thing, it's about human progress. He's like, no, he knows that doesn't work. All he has to do is give the order and Christ will come and judge and save and rule because he himself is our peace. Isaiah is not telling us when, he is telling us who. And that should be enough for us. This is the good news God is calling us to embrace today. And the question becomes, will we? He doesn't tell us when, he tells us who. This is the ruler, this is the leader, this is the king that we can trust. So in the harsh reality of the world that we face, we're looking for meaning. There's this king that has shown up on the scene who is with us today because we have his spirit and he's gonna come back and set everything right. This is the ruler to get behind. An Advent is an invitation to ponder and to consider probably that thing that has you in a grip is because we've given our attention, our loyalty, our affection to something else that, hey, will you rule me? A career, will you rule me? Or relationship, will you rule me? Or finances, will you rule me? Or whatever it happens, being well-liked. All sorts of things that we set up. We put that thing on the throne and Jesus is like, no, no, get that thing out of there. I'm on the throne and you only find life when you find it in me you trust this king. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our affection. And so look at this. There's more in here than we have time for, but just this unbelievable picture. Let me just read it. Verses 6 to 10. It says this then. Here is the renewal that is coming. Here's what Jesus is going to do. When he splits the sky and he comes back and he sets everything right, here's kind of how the world is described. It's sort of poetic language and imagery that's used here. It says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And in all of this, a little child shall lead them. I mean, just think of that picture for a moment. You got these ferocious beasts, all right? And you got this toddler, right? Like if you walk, you look out in the hallway and like, some kid wandered out of CP kids, right? And he's just there and he's got like this lion with him and just like a little child's leading him. And like, no, no, he's good. He's got it. Like we'd freak out, but this is the new world order that's coming. This is what Jesus is going to usher in. It says, the nursing child shall play. Okay, so this is, now we're talking in the realm of an infant, all right? The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. you imagine doing that? Any new mothers here, right? Just like, oh yeah, I just love to lay my child, you know, like in between nursing sessions, just like, hey, we got a pet cobra they play with, all right? And it continues, and the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den, which is another way of saying a snake pit, all right? back this week, had flashbacks. To, I think it's one of the Indiana Jones movies where he fall, Indy falls in one of the snake pits, right? And he's like got this torch and it's just like, just terrifying, right? And yet here's this image, tiny little babies and like they'll stick their hole down in there amongst the cobras and into the, the snake pit, into the den and be like, yeah, this is cool. With no fear, no trepidation, everything perfect, It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so just the quick summary of this, we can say, listen, the curse, we sing in joy to the world. Listen to that song this season, far as the curse is found, that curse has crept into every nook and cranny and it's not just out there in the world, it goes deep down into the recesses of my own heart, the places that I don't want to explore, the places that I'd rather just turn on Netflix. I won't eat kale, but you get the idea, right? Like this sort of thing, it's like, I'm going to be distracted. Far as the curse is found and the gospel goes even further, that there's this rescue mission by this Messiah, by this King, and the curse actually gets reversed. And so you see it in this passage, right? Hostilities, all the hostilities go away, like these animals that didn't get along, right? They usually are like, oh, cool. There's this young, innocent, unsuspecting animal. I'm gonna have that for dinner, all right? That's not how it goes. They're lying down together. Um, I'm not sure what to make of this, but so you got hostilities, the herbivores, all right? Did you notice their diet changes with this, which is a reference back to Eden when there wasn't death and things didn't kill each other. All right? The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Since when have we seen a lion eating just straw? But apparently, this is meant to showcase for us, things are going to go back into how God originally desired them and intended them to be. If you're like, does that mean I can't eat steak? And then, I have no idea. All right? Um, I, I hope not. I think the lion's just grass-fed and it'll taste better. I don't know what that means. All right? But, and then it says, and then the hands... The hand, like literally the hands of the children in the snake pit. Like what in the world is happening? But it's not just about the hands. Do you know the story? You remember Genesis 3? That the serpent shows up and there's curses that are pronounced. There's going to be this enmity, this conflict, this, this hostility that exists between the seed, the offspring of the woman, and the serpent forever until the serpent crusher comes and he crushes the head of the serpent where he crushes Satan's sin and death. Like this picture here, it's not just about, oh cool, like you'll be able to handle snakes with no like recourse or not being freaked out. It's that the ultimate enemy of God has been crushed. Like that's what this is communicating. And it says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's everywhere. Far as the curse is found, the gospel goes further. Further. There's no one that's beyond the reach of God's grace. You might have brought things in here this morning. I don't know if I can, you know, be forgiven for that. I don't know if I can even forgive myself for that. I don't know. God's grace goes further still. And the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of this king and this ruler and why we should get behind him and how he brings life, it's gonna fill the earth. That's what brings about this picture that we see here. And so let's close with this then. How in the world can we be so confident in this? How do we know that not only is this the ruler that we can trust, but this is actually where the story is heading, that the hostilities between us and God are going to go away. The hostility that exists amongst people are going to go away. There won't be nations at war with one another. You'll be able to actually have a Thanksgiving dinner and not erupt in a fight, right? Like all the hostilities are going to go away. How in the world, how can we be so confident? Look with me back at verse 10. It says this, in that day, we looked at this the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. God's intentions from the very beginning have been to gather all the nations. So that they might ultimately find the rest. That's why Jesus shows up on the scene and says, Come to me, all of you who are heavy, you know, weary, heavy laden, your burden, and I will give you rest. With Jesus, the burden is actually light. Do you know that? He's bringing this Sabbath rest. Now, the confidence, and that's that picture that we get in Isaiah 11. All the animals getting along. I mean, it's a picture of Sabbath rest as God originally intended things to be but this one shall stand as a signal for the peoples." Here's where we'll close. That word signal, begin to do a little word study on that, look that up, it has a couple different ways that it can be translated. And it's the image here of a banner or of a flag. And it's as if it's saying, listen, there's this banner of the Messiah, of the coming King that is flying high And when you see that, like when you know that, you can have a confidence. I told you Ray Ortland's commentary was brilliant. um, And in it, I'm just going to rip this off. He's like, dude, this is a a good illustration. He spoke of words that you probably are all familiar with, but maybe you don't know the context. And he begins to tell the, the story, the historical story of how we got the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner, what became known as our national anthem. Like, why do people, I literally was at a swim meet yesterday and I was walking in from my car and the meet was ready to begin and like well, there's droves of people in the parking lot and all of a sudden you could hear the music and we all just stopped and we did this. Like what, like, what is going on? And there's this line in here, which is beautiful. Maybe you've heard this before. I'm not gonna sing it, all right? but And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. These words were penned by an amateur poet named Francis Scott Key. And during the War of 1812, he found himself, all right, on board of a ship occupied by the British Navy, all right, and outside of Fort McHenry, which is present-day Baltimore area, all right. And as he was there, he'd been negotiating some hostage sort of uh, like prisoner, like exchange and that, that sort of thing. But he was held captive one night and the bombs were going off. And as he looked off, he began to write down some of these words that later became the, the lines to this song that we sing before well, lots of sporting events and things like that. And you imagine him, he's in enemy territory and he's, he's looking out and he's just, he sees the flag off in the distance. And as the bomb's bursting in air and the rocket's right glare, that sort of thing, it gave proof. He's like, ah, but the flag is still there. It hasn't been taken down and the enemy's flag put up. So, he knows he's in a battle. And isn't this a beautiful depiction of the human condition in the life that we live? The flag is still flying. The gospel banner is still waving. You have nothing to fear. There are battles. There is enemy fire. There is difficulty. But what we know and what we trust, the ultimate signal and the reason we can have confidence, as amazing as it was for that man on that night in the war of 1812 to look out and see the American flag still there, there's something better and more profound and more beautiful is that the ultimate banner that we continue to look at is the banner of Jesus Christ and what he did. And there's a time where Jesus spoke of this in John 12, and he says, and when I am lifted up from the earth… Will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So what is our flag? What is our banner? What is our signal? We look to the cross. And we know amidst the difficulty and the devastation and the forests that have been felled and the lack of meaning we sometimes feel, we can look out in the night. And like that man to, to see the flags to flying, we can see you know, the cross. We remember what Jesus did and all the hostility that exists in the world. He took that upon himself. What should have been poured out on you and poured out on me was instead absorbed by him. All the hostility. And then three days later, because he's not on the cross anymore and he's not in the tomb anymore. And we have this ultimate signal that Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And now we await the king and we can wait in hope. And we know that he's coming back to set everything right. Right? that this is the banner. Will we continue to fly that banner as a church? Jesus Christ, our hope is in the cross of Christ and nothing else. That's what we boast in. People think it's foolish. The world thinks it's foolish, but it is the wisdom of God. And this is what the Advent season reminds us, that this is the story that we're part of. And so, I want to give us a moment to respond. I'm going to give you some time to just quiet your hearts, to spend some time in reflection and prayer. We'll give some instruction in a moment on how we're going to continue in our service. But will you take some time? I trust the Spirit has been at work. Will you repent? What is it maybe that you've made ultimate? What is in the grip? What, what kind of pseudo-king or false king or savior have you been trusting and to repent of that, and then to remember, to call to mind the glorious good news that is the gospel, that Jesus took all the hostility that we deserved, and he took it into himself for the Father's glory and for your joy that he did that. And then we're going to have an opportunity to rejoice together. We're going to rejoice in song and giving and communion and all of that in a moment. But for now, I want to give you a moment. So, let me pray and then give you a couple moments of quiet and reflection. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful text and the promises that are embedded in it and the, the fulfillment that we have already seen and experienced as Jesus, you, you came under the scene once and we understand and we believe and we trust that you're going to come again, that you're going to set everything right. And that we have to look no further than, the, than your cross to know that that is this ultimate signal. It's this flag that continues to fly telling us that we are part of a story of redemption and of rescue and of a love the Father has for his wayward children to bring us in. And so we give you praise for that. Holy Spirit, we know that you're present here with us now. Lead us in repentance. Remind us of the gospel. Let us know the affections of the Father who sings over us. May we live from that place of blessing. May we hear the words that were spoken of Jesus to be spoken over us, that we are the beloved and you are well pleased with us because of Jesus. Give us that rest. Give us that healing that we long for. May we find meaning in you and you alone. And God, we pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience great joy. Hear our prayers now, Jesus. Amen.